they have life jackets, they are most likely to be um, frauds. Um, they are not uh, safe things. They are actually kind of have an interior which, um, uh, which has the danger that it gets sucked up with water and actually pulls the people down. Uh, it's, just, it's just really, really dangerous for the people. This was supposed to be the first episode of Fractured, but I needed time, space and the right emotions to prepare it. And it took me a long time to figure out how to talk about deaths at sea. Not only because the topic is difficult in general, but also because it's something of extreme importance to the whole Refocus team. As many of you know, the Refocus team is a mix of nationalities with a very strong actually dominating at the moment Afghan community. Our teachers, citizen journalists and students took the journey through the Aegean Sea to claim asylum in Europe. Even though it was a very difficult journey for them and left some mental scars, they were lucky. They made it. Every year hundreds, even thousands, don't. According to the UNHCR data, 478 people have already been declared dead or missing in the Mediterranean since the beginning of 2022. We closed 2021 with almost 2,000 deaths, which was not a big number compared to 2016. Over 5,000 people died in the Mediterranean then. Now, the way I want to present this not easy topic is through a movie Refocus made in 2019 called Even After Death. The idea for this documentary came from Reza Adib, an Afghan journalist who at that time was part of Refocus program. In this episode of Fractured, you will hear from people engaged in the rescue and body identification movement who agreed to speak to us on camera when we were shooting Even After Death. Let's start with Julia, who at the time we met her worked with an organization called Refugee Rescue on Lesbos. We have seen overcrowded boats with up to 70 people. First of all, what causes the death is the fact that they are crossing in the first place, which shouldn't be happening. I think it's a combination of the fact that the boats are not uh, properly made. They are not meant to be holding uh, a higher number of people. The engines, which again are not proper engine, uh, the weather condition, the fact that the boats are driven by the refugees who have no uh, sea experience whatsoever. Some of them haven't even seen the sea. Um, so I think it's a combination of uh, factors and uh, also their own uh, emotion. It is extremely difficult to navigate from Turkey to Greece. Uh, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the sea, everything is dark. If the current is, um, is pushing you against Greece, uh, it might happen that your boat turns and you think that you are heading to Greece while you are actually heading back to Turkey. We are at around five nautical miles uh, away from Turkey and we are in one of the windiest parts of the island. Uh, the weather uh, and the wind uh, changes uh, relatively quickly. Even when we see that it's rough uh, over here, usually it looks calm in, uh, in Turkey because the mountains are stopping the wind. So for the first few hundred meters, uh, the water looks uh, completely calm, but as soon as uh, the boat enters uh, the open sea, then the wind and the waves 
Uh, so for us, any refugee boat is a boat in distress. There are several rescue ships operating in the Mediterranean. They are all privately financed and operate without any support from the governments. I should probably rephrase this sentence and say that they operate despite obstacles governments create for them. Many of those ships have been stuck in European ports, mostly Italian ones, as authorities put new regulations on them or introduce detailed inspections. Not mentioning, of course, not allowing them to dock in ports, with hundreds of asylum seekers rescued from the sea on board. You have probably heard about Captain Carola Rakete, who was arrested after she entered the Italian port of Lampedusa with 40 asylum seekers on board. The rescue vessel Sea-Watch 3 has been denied entry into port for two weeks in June 2019. Italian authorities say the vessel did not have permission to dock, but Rakete said at the time she was doing her duty to save lives. After a long court battle in December 2021, Captain Rakete was finally cleared of all charges. One of the first rescue ships in the Mediterranean was Mare Liberum. It saved thousands of lives, mostly at the coast of Libya at the beginning of the crisis. But as bigger and better equipped ships took its place in the central Mediterranean, this old boat serves now for monitoring purposes in the Aegean. We visited Mare back in 2019 and spoke to Philip, its captain at the time. Whoever chooses to, to step on one of these boats must be really desperate. We faced a couple of situations where um, people were drowning, uh, where people were already drowned or dead. Um, we uh, got into a couple of situations where we had to deal with uh, shipwrecks. Uh, recently we have a lot of uh, women and children. If they have life jackets, they're most likely to be um, frauds. Um, they're not uh, safe things. They're actually kind of have an interior which um, uh, which has the danger that it gets sucked up with water and actually pulls the people down. Uh, it's, just, it's just really, really dangerous for the people, especially now when winter comes and uh, they have more clothes on and these are wet and they pull them down. Let's stop for a second and go back to the life jackets Philip talks about. For everybody who visited Lesbos for any other reason than holidays, the Life Jackets graveyard is a well-known place. Refugees who have crossed the Mediterranean from Turkey to Greece and who could afford a life jacket would buy it in Turkey. Very frequently, the smugglers sell them to their clients and, as you heard from Philip, they usually don't do their job. After reaching the shore, asylum seekers would take them off to put emergency blankets on and to warm up. The jackets are left on the beach. Volunteers clean the beaches regularly, but at some point the amount of life jackets was simply too big. So local authorities identified a spot in a small valley near Molivos. With time, the piles of life jackets grew and turned into hills. Even though the place was hidden in a valley in the north of Lesbos, people would learn about it and come to see it themselves the silent testimony of the scale of the crisis. It became almost a must-see for every new volunteer on the island. At some point, it seemed like a weekend travel destination. To the point that you can even locate it in Google Maps by typing Life Jackets Graveyard. Local authorities decided to finally clean this place during COVID lockdown. Still, Google Maps pin remains, 
but with a permanently closed note. Despite the risky journey through the Mediterranean, people are still crossing or at least trying to cross every day. But Europe's approach to accepting refugees from the South has changed over the course of time. The solidarity movement is much smaller than at the peak of the crisis in 2015 and 2016, and the European governments are closing their borders for the asylum seekers from the South. In Europe, you cannot ask for, for help as a refugee, uh, for asylum, uh, if you do not fall from the sky. The people have to step on these boats or they have to cross uh, the land border. We're closing Europe down. We are, we are building a huge fence on land and a deadly um, sea border um, around the islands and uh, our shores. The burden of the refugee crisis has been mostly on the shoulders of small communities like those living on Greek islands. The response in 2015 was tremendous. Fishermen would take their boats to the sea to rescue drowning people. Local restaurant owners would cook food for those brought to the shore. People would collect clothes, blankets, whatever was needed. This response earned the community in the north of Lesbos a nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize. But this response is barely present now. The reasons for that are many and deserve a separate episode of the podcast. But one thing I would like to mention at this moment is the insufficient support from the governments. This gap was very visible in the area of sea rescue and body identification. Any small community anywhere, the infrastructure is set up to deal with normal life with small populations. Mm. When something abnormal happens, uh, those systems are seriously tested and then you'll find that the local emergency services and uh, are stretched and often beyond capacity. But we, we know from the last few years that these have become normal and many hundreds of millions of euros in, in the European context have been put into uh, the situation on the, the Mediterranean borders around Greece and, and Italy. Uh, there hasn't been a corresponding um, increase in resources and expertise given to the resolution of issues for families where they've experienced shipwrecks and, uh, and deaths. The police generally uh, are not greatly involved unless they're persuaded that a crime has been committed and these deaths are not, uh, as a general rule, treated as crimes. The coroner on the, the island of Lesbos uh, is also responsible for providing those services on other Aegean islands. So it's not even one whole person. The couple you've just heard from are Katrina Jarvis and Sid Bolton, a judge and a lawyer from the UK who initiated the Last Rights Project, an initiative that advocates for the rights of missing and dead refugees, migrants and bereaved family members. The Last Rights Project brought together academics, practitioners and the local community on Lesbos to work together on the Mytilini Declaration. I want to take a moment to read you only some of the Declaration's recommendations. Provide safe passage for those seeking safety. Collect, examine and preserve all bodies. Respect the bodies of the dead and guarantee chain of custody of the bodies from recovery to the final destination. 
facilitate repatriation of the remains of the dead to their family, if possible. I think we need to approach it from the point of view that, that one such death is one too many, uh, as a starting point. Um, but we also need to take on board the number of the number of people who are on the move internationally and the fact that that will only increase uh, as time goes on for a variety of reasons for, for wars, for uh, issues arising out of uh, climate change, for example. So we do need to, we do need to be um, preparing uh, ourselves in compliance with the, with, the, with the duties and obligations that exist for states. What we call on states uh, and other authorities to do uh, is to respect the, the duties that exist. We aren't asking them to do anything new. And I think that, that's a uh, key uh, part of the Mitterrand Declaration. These are, these are duties that exist. One of the most difficult obligations to fulfill is to identify the bodies, as many cross the Mediterranean without any documents. Some bodies can be identified by family members traveling in the same boat. However, if an asylum seeker is traveling alone or without documents, it is extremely difficult to learn his or her identity. To increase the chances, coroners collect DNA samples, take pictures of the body and gather personal items. This way, if a family searches for a relative months later, even years later, they can approach a local coroner. This protocol of DNA and personal items collection was introduced on Lesbos relatively late, when the crisis was already at its peak. The ma mother, father, dead. And to one, how do you say it? Uncle, speak. Uh, the babies. Where is, uh, where is the babies? Four, four children. Four children. Where is the four children? And uh, I take before uh, DNA for uh, mother and father, and I give the DNA to Athens, this, Kivrikani, Tatria, Apota Tessera, Toteta, That's Theodoros Nusias, a coroner for Lesbos who also serves on Limnos and sometimes on Samos Island. In this case, he managed to identify three children just because their DNA samples were in a database. He was, however, not able to find the fourth one. The family, just like many others, is buried at Katotritos, a piece of land designated by local authorities on Lesbos to bury refugees. The place is far away from any city or the refugee camps on the island, surrounded by olive groves and barbed wire. Refugees have to ask permission to visit the graves of their relatives. Before this piece of land was turned into a cemetery, refugees were buried in a local cemetery. This cemetery was Christian, though, and due to the lack of space, after four years, their remains would be dug out and placed together in the corner of the cemetery. For Muslims, this was unacceptable. I think when some people is dying, especially refugee when it is dying, migrant is, it is dying, I think it is the last right, the last right of this person that should be respected this body 
and especially for the relatives, it is so important to know what happened with them. Not just to know about the, the dead body. For me, it is important to repatriate these bodies to the, uh, to the countries where they came from. Psychologically, for the relatives, it is so important. That's another important voice in our story. Yonus Mohammadi, a founder of the Greek Forum of Refugees, an NGO based in Athens. Yunus came to Greece 15 years ago, and from day one he engaged in the creation of a support network. He remembers the peak days of the current crisis and his role in it very well. There were so many dead bodies that it was a process that I had the list and the photos of the people, and I should open, you know, it was the, fr the refrigerator to open it, to take it out. Then there was uh, like a bag that they were in, plastic bag, they were inside opening the plastic bag and looking the face so it was really a uh, difficult time for me and most of the time I had nightmare uh, and even now have for two things in my life I have still I have nightmares it is one for Taliban that they are chasing me <laughs> and uh, cheesing girls like this and another it is uh, it is uh, looking the face of these uh, people's uh, so money like this. But I have studied medicines, and I know psychology, and I know the feeling of a mom, a relatives, a dad, and I know, I can understand the dreams and the, the dreams of these people, that, that why they left their homeland and why they came here, and very badly they lost their life and in a very bad situation, and their last right, which is to be respected as a dead body, that it is not happening, it is so uh, painful. It is really uh, painful. And then thinking that, that when one person is dying here, it doesn't mean that it is finished. It means that the families are back. If you cannot find the, the relatives, so always you are suffering. Just before recording this podcast, information about yet another tragedy made news. Well, some news. To be honest, it was to be found only in the humanitarian circles, rescue groups and small groups of journalists dedicated to keep reporting about the Aegean. A body of a child was found floating in the sea area of the island of Heraklia in the central Aegean Sea. The body was wearing only a white blouse and it is estimated to belong to a child aged between 12 and 15. The remains were in an advanced state of decay. Not even the sex of the child could be identified. According to authorities, the child may have been among those who went missing when two boats carrying refugees sank off the islands of Paros on December 25th and Fola Grandos, December 22nd. Before that, a body of another young child was recovered from the Aegean Sea on January 8th. The body was found off the island of Naxos in Greece, and authorities estimated that the victim, who was 33.5 inches tall, was about three years old. On January 6th, Four other bodies belonging to a man, a woman, and two preteen girls were found 
three of Naxos and one of the coasts of nearby island of Paros. There are still people missing from those two deadly shipwrecks from the last Christmas. Some will never be found. This episode of Fractured will have its second part. We will then discuss the body identification process deeper, go into the topic of proper funerals and the situation at the land border between Greece and Turkey. So follow us closely on your podcast platform and social media at Refocus Media Labs. If you are interested in organizing a screening of Even After Death, please contact us on email refocusmedialabs at gmail.com or social media. And if you would like to educate yourself more on the subject, I recommend following the Aegean Boat Report, the Last Rights Project, and of course, signing up for Joel's Mixed Migration Abdo. Even after that, was created with the support of Minority Rights Group International. Follow them for deeper reports on the situation of minorities all around the world. All links in the description of this podcast. At the end, I would like to thank all the people who worked on Even After Death. First of all, Reza Adib, who brought the story to us and co-directed the movie. The whole crew of Refocus 2019 and 2020, as well as everybody who trusted us with their stories on crossing the Mediterranean. We hope we've represented your collective experience truthfully.